Good evening, everybody. You keep talking while I set up. <laughs> All righty. We're almost there. We're almost there. Start. There we go. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, some of you might not know me. Um, I don't expect everyone to. My name is Kyle. I'm part of the leadership team here. And... Uh, We'll just jump straight in. As Steph said, uh, Easter weekend is fast approaching. It's here in, in two or three weeks. Um, and it's obviously a massive weekend for Christ followers around the globe. And it obviously celebrates uh, the crucifixion of, of Jesus and his resurrection. And, and the event of Christ's death in particular, I think, but also his resurrection, is something that has, you could argue, has astonished and aggravated people across history in equal measure. Um, the, the, the cross is not an uncontroversial uh, thing, um, and tonight might not be a, an uncontroversial thing. But um, I think at a high level, no matter who you are, even if you're here tonight, you're not a Christ follower, you might have sort of some vague notion that Jesus going to the cross has something to do with forgiveness, right? Jesus died to forgive people, but um, that really hardly scratches the surface, and so We've decided that as a team that it's fitting for us as Christ followers as we, as we approach Easter to spend some time exploring uh, the depth and the breadth of the atonement and its achievements. And by the atonement, we mean what Christ did on the cross in order to reconcile people to God. And that's what we're going to unpack tonight and for the rest of our, our series as if you're here tonight, you're not a Christ follower, um, you are so welcome. Um, we do say this often that, hey, this is a great night for you to be here and you'll understand what it means to be a Christ follower. But really, 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 tonight we are getting to the, the foundation of the foundation of, of, um, of, of, of our faith, really. And so you are so welcome to be here. I really hope that it serves you well. Um, and looking ahead to Easter, the, the, the cross and the symbol of the cross in particular is, is so central to our faith. Like, everyone sees a cross, they know what it means. Perhaps, maybe that little fish that some of you will know might be a runner-up contender for like a, a recognized symbol of Christianity, but the cross is the one that is at the, the center of everything. And the cross is so central that the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, told the church that he was writing to that, hey, when I was among you, I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. Um, and he basically said that that was his ministry. But you go and read the teaching of the Apostle Paul in person and his letters that he wrote to churches, and it's quite clear he taught a whole bunch of stuff. But the point is, every single thing that he taught was based on this foundation of the crucifixion of Jesus. That was the foundation of everything. That was the fountainhead that, that, that spewed out everything else that he spoke about and wrote about. And so the atonement... Uh, what Christ did on the cross is, some theologians have said it, it's kind of like the great jewel of the Christian faith. And like any great jewel that's, that's you know, been, been, been cut nicely, when you hold it up to the light and you, you rotate it and you pay attention to all the various angles of it, you are treated to a whole bunch of reflections that give you a much deeper appreciation of its value. And essentially, um, that's what we're doing with this series, Christ Crucified, Reflections on the Glory of the Cross. We're going to be looking at all the multiple achievements of what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross and what that means for our lives. And, and I mean, there's so many, we're going to make this a volume two next year or, or the year after. And the devotional book that you've got, very much as Steph said, tracks along uh, with the series. But it, 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 what I think is helpful about it is, is you can just 
take a moment to pause and just go a little deeper on all these little facets. Consider, consider your life, consider what Christ did, consider this metaphor, ask yourself questions. It really is a, a, a way to, to helpfully grapple with all the various ways that the cross is portrayed. And I think our heart in this series is obviously to teach us good doctrine. We wanna, we wanna, we wanna, we wanna learn stuff, That's, we, need, we need our minds conformed. But more than that, I think the, the idea is that this should sink down to an identity level, an identity level. It's, I think it's one thing as a Christ follower, to be able to say the phrase in, in whatever those moments are, yeah, 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 but my identity is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. And, and that's true, and I want everyone to say that your identity is in Christ, but I think it's one thing to kind of just repeat the phrase, you know, like in a casual way or in a rote way. It's another thing entirely to actually grapple to the depths of, of what Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection actually means for who I am and for the life that I'm living. And that's the, that's the heart of, of this series. And so today we are talking about um, penal substitutionary atonement. Now, um, I want to just say that that's actually not the original Greek you might be sitting here and thinking, that sounds like a completely foreign language. Is that the original language that the Bible was written in? No, that's the English translation. It might sound very, very foreign to you, and that is okay. We are going to unpack uh, this idea tonight. Um, and every week, we're going to un- 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 unpack all the different ways that the, Christ is, uh, that the cross is portrayed, all the different metaphors, all the unique angles. But I would put to you that this is probably the very foundation of the cross, there are many metaphors for, for what Christ did on the cross and, 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 and what that looks like, um, but this is the reality. This is the reality of, of what happened that then shoots off in a whole bunch of different reflections. And if Jesus is the center of our faith, which we believe it is, and that's why if you're a visitor, you've got the Jesus, Jesus, Jesus book, um, and if at the center of who Jesus is and what he's done is the cross, then I wanna to put to you, at the, at the crux of the cross is this. We're getting right to the very heart of, of what we are talking about when we're talking about the good news of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna put up a picture for you, um, and I wanna see if it means anything to a bunch of you. The AM, the AM crowd, I had, to, I had to educate them. Maybe I need to educate you guys too, but um, can you shout out for me what is going on in this picture? Anybody? Ronaldo and Messi? Obvious, but, but, but true. Greatest of all time. That's what GOAT stands for. So when the World Cup came and there was lots of emojis and, and, and in, you know, chats on YouTube looking at highlights and stuff and there were just these little goats flying around, it was the big argument come December, who is the greatest of all time between these two, right? They've been competing for years. Um, they've, you know, they've, they've, they've gone back and forth in terms of winning footballer of the year and all that sort of stuff. And so the big, the big question around the World Cup was, who's the greatest of all time? And uh, I don't want to be controversial, but um, it seems like Messi kind of lent in the direction of greatest of all time since he's now got a World Cup, uh, you know, under his belt. But some people would just say, let's just have two goats. Let's just have two goats. They're both fantastic. I don't know where you fall on this. I don't know if you even care. But what I want to um, convince you of this evening, and it's going to be gloriously cheesy, it's going to be gloriously cheesy, is the next slide. I want to convince you that Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the goat. If you leave here remembering any phrase, I'm pretty certain you will leave with this phrase. Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And I'm gonna make the case for that um, as we unpack the the scriptures tonight. So um, 
Here's a question. It's kind of a trick question. It, you, you might find that a trick question. Um, was Jesus a Christian? It takes a moment, but the answer's no. It takes a second. It's like, what do you put in a toaster? It's not toast, it's bread. It's the same kind of question. Was Jesus a Christian? No. He wants you all to be Christians, but he was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Um, Jesus Christ, that's where we get the phrase Christian from, but Jesus was a Jew in the first century. And being as such, he was steeped in the Jewish law, he was steeped in the Jewish calendar, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, and he himself viewed his life, and while he, was, while he was on earth, while he was teaching, he viewed his upcoming death and resurrection that he was aware of as very much a part of that story that had been told through the Hebrew Scriptures. And he saw himself as the culmination and the climax of, of the law and the ceremonies and the calendar and, and everything that, that had been um, found in, in the Jewish Scriptures. And the, the Jewish people viewed all their scriptures as, as God-breathed and, and holy and God's word to them, but there was a, um, a special emphasis, if you could say, or a special importance on the first five books of the Bible. These books were foundational for uh, the Jewish nation, their ceremonies, their moral instruction, all the other books that come after this are based on what was found in these five books, and they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, uh, and they were called the law. In your English Bible, you'll often, they'll be referred to as the law, not just Leviticus, but the whole five, and the, the, the Jewish word for that is the Torah. You might have heard of that. In some of the English Bibles, it's often called the Pentateuch, meaning the, the, the five books, the first five books, um, and often in Jewish literature, especially in the poetry, there's this thing called a chiastic structure where, where um, these outside verses will mirror each other, and then the next two will mirror each other, and as you get into the center, it's the thing that's right in the center, which is the thing that the author's trying to get you to pay attention to. And scholars have said, actually, in, in, when it comes to the Torah, it's kind of similar. Leviticus is the middle book of the Torah, and it has got some very key stuff that needs to be paid attention to. And actually, the center of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16, which scholars agree is very much the hinge point of that book. It is the center of the center. Some scholars, scholars have called Leviticus 16 the pinnacle of the Pentateuch because it is such a vital chapter for understanding both the Old Testament, but also the story and the, the concept of Christ and Him crucified. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Leviticus 16 is all about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you might have heard about it. Um, and so let's dive in. We're going to track along and hopefully ultimately figure out how this helps us understand what happened at the cross. And so Leviticus 16, um, I'm just going to describe a lot of it to you, and then we'll read a sort of key moment a little later on. So do me a favor now. Step back with me. Get out of modern, very westernized 20th century mindset where, where you find yourself. Um, step back with me to the culture of our ancient brothers and sisters from the ancient Near East. Um, their culture was full of symbols, full of stories, full of metaphors, more than sort of... Um, you know, just intellectual ideas, like our sort of modern, modern Western world is, very Greek in nature. They were full of, full of picture language. And the headlines about where we are in the story when you get to Leviticus 16 is this, basically. God had created this world, and this is the story of the Bible and the story of human history. God created this world to dwell with humanity, to dwell with us, to be with us, to do stuff together. That was his intention. But um, Human sin entered the picture really early on. 
and our evil deeds, our rejection of God ultimately caused us to be banished from His presence. His presence had departed from us. And because of that, human beings, all human beings are, are under the current judgment of God, um, subject to death. Death is a result of sin, the Bible teaches us. Um, and God himself is, is the, not only the creator of life, but the sustainer of life, okay? And because human beings no longer have a relationship with God, they're cut off from the very provision of life. They're ultimately going to physically die, but they're also cut off from the very spiritual, vital life force that God has in and of himself. And they're cut off from his goodness. And um, much like a fire is something that is really good, and it, it, it can provide light, it can provide warmth, um, picture God like a fire. In fact, the Bible does picture him like a fire. The thing is, if you approach that fire incorrectly, or if you are not in, a, in a, um, the, the, the right relationship with the fire, it can be very, very dangerous to you. And that's the, the, the predicament where human beings find themselves, is that because of sin, God's presence no longer just gives us light and warmth. It is a very dangerous reality to come into contact with. Human sin has separated us from God. That's the, that's the main thing. That's then cashed out in all the sin, all the evil that has happened over the centuries, over the millennia. You've seen in your life, you have participated in, you have received. That is all the result of sin. But God still wants to dwell with his people. That is the heart of God. Sin makes us uninhabitable, if I can say it like that. And so the big, the big question by the time we get to Leviticus 16, and life was Leviticus as a whole, is how can a holy, righteous, perfect, just, loving God live with and be present with sinful people who've hated him, rejected him, and done everything against his will? That's, that's the conundrum. And God could have said, we're just going to leave it there. That's the end of the story. I'm just, this, this is where things are, and this is the natural consequence of things. And he could have just left it there, but that would not account for the love and the grace and the mercy of God, which is also deeply found in his character and in his being. And so through the people of Israel in the story of the Old Testament, God began to make a way to dwell with his people. And one of the ways he did that was he provided for them the tabernacle, the tabernacle. So you'll go to the next slide. That's the tabernacle. It was a very central part of Israelite life um, in the early chapters of the Bible, in the early books of the Bible. Um, all, the, all the instructions for it you find are, are, are in the law of how it was meant to be set up. But basically, this was a tent where God presenced himself and resided amongst his people. And um, one, well, let me just describe it to you briefly. You've got this whole outer courtyard here that you can see, some people milling around. That square thing that you see, that is the altar where a lot of sacrifices were made um, to help people be able to um, atone for their sin and be in a right relationship with God, and we'll unpack a bit more of that now. But sacrifices happen there pretty much daily. Um, and then you've got the, the tabernacle itself, that tented room at the back. You can go to the next slide, you'll see. Um, a cross section here is you've got this larger outer section here which was called the holy place and there's tons of symbolic things that are going on there and then beyond the curtain beyond the veil in that cubed room there that is called the most holy place or the holiest of holies and that's where the very presence of God dwelt 
That's where his manifest glory resided. And um, specifically, you've got the, the, that, that golden box there, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside were the, the two tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments on them, the foundation of Israelite society. And on top of the box was a gold-plated cover called the Atonement Cover. And it's, it's, it's right above that cover, but between the, the cherubim angels there, where it was said, that, that is the point. That is the hot spot of God's presence. And in the Jewish mind, this was basically the throne room of God, and the ark was his, his footstool. This was, if I can use a language, this was a connection point between heaven and earth. That is what the tabernacle was, and that's specifically what the holiest of holies was. And so at the heart of Leviticus, at the heart of the Bible, at the heart of human history is the problem, is the challenge that we've said, how does God dwell with people? He provided this tabernacle, but um, firstly, people consistently needed to offer these sacrifices all the time. The, the, the big thing is you don't, you don't approach God lightly. You don't just casually walk into the tabernacle. And so um, no one was allowed in the tabernacle except the, the, the priests. Um, if you were just a regular Israelite, you were outside having the priests make sacrifices on your behalf on the altar. But once a year, once a year, there was a special day the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It would happen once a year where the sins of the whole people could be taken care of, and the tabernacle itself was um, purified and, and, and cleansed because obviously um, very real sinful people had been living in the midst of the tabernacle and, and, and you know, doing uh, ritual sacrifices around the tabernacle. So that's what this day was about. Um, and now let's describe how it went down. Let's, could you just grab me some water, sorry. Let's describe now how it went down. Um, and atonement is at the, at the very heart of what we're talking about here. And what does the word atonement mean? Can I just describe it briefly here? It's a word that has many shades. It's a word that has many shades. Um, basically, at its, at its core, it's about covering over a debt that is owed. So, for example, if you go out for a coffee with someone and you conveniently forget your wallet, you might need to tell that person, hey, man, could you, could you cover me? Could you cover me here? That's a simple way of saying, could you stand in my stead and pay the debt that I owe? Um, that's atonement. Um, it also has this notion of, of averting anger in order to reconcile two parties who are against each other. It's about purging uncleanness. These are the ideas that are at play here. And so once a year, the high priest would lose all his fancy priestly gear that he wore the rest of the year. He'd, he'd wash himself to make sure that he was absolutely ritually clean, okay? All the purity laws that you might read of in Leviticus, although they might be weird, they are symbolic, and they were meant to teach the people of Israel a lesson. Um, they were symbol symbolic of the very real moral failings of the people before God, and it was a reminder, you don't approach God casually. You need to approach God in, in the most clean, holy way. And so this priest, at, at this day, he, he stripped off all his fancy stuff, and he put on a white tunic, a white robe, a white sash, essentially the most humble of garments, the most humble of garments. He clothes himself in humility before he goes in and approaches the maker and the judge of the universe, because unlike anyone else, the high priest is going to go right in to the most holy place. Now, he's going in as a representative of the people, okay? He is the mediator between God and the people in this moment. And what he does is he gets hold of a bull and, and two goats. Um, and first of all, outside the altar, so we can go back to the other slide, outside the altar, uh, sorry, outside uh, in the courtyard on the altar, he would have sacrificed the bull for his own sin and the sin of his family. And the reason he, he needed to do that is because he is going in 
right into the very presence of God. So he needs to be covered. He needs to make sure, you know, he's done all the washings and now he's offering this sin offering on his, on his behalf. He needs to make sure he is, he is clean because he's going in to represent the people. And if, if, if there's a blemish on him, if he hasn't done this, he could, he's gonna die in the presence of God, in the holiest of holies. It is high stakes for him, but it's also high stakes for the people because this is their only shot to have all their sins covered for, you know, this year. And so they don't want this dude to be rejected and, and die because that then leaves them in trouble as well. So it's high stakes, it's high stakes. And actually in chapter 10 of Leviticus, what happened is two of the sons of the priest actually went and offered a whole bunch of sacrifices in ways that God hadn't asked them to do. And they encountered the presence of God and they died. It's a very, very sobering story. They disregarded God. They were in the wrong. They transgressed God and they died when they entered his presence. And I think a point to be made here for even us today is that no one should blame God for the inevitable consequences of coming face to face with him. Can I say that again? No one should blame God for the inevitable consequences when we come face to face with them. Something that will happen for all of us one day on the other side of the grave. And so if you were an Israelite, you wanted this guy to have his stuff together, okay? If he screws up, you are screwed. That's basically the idea. He is representing you. And the high priest, as I say, he went through great lengths to be clean, so he, he sacrificed the bull. But next up, there are these two goats that enter the picture, right? Two goats now are on the scene. And it would be amazing if, if for illustration's sake, we had, we had a goat, right? That we, could, that we could, you know, bring up on stage and just kind of demonstrate for everyone what this would have been like, what this would have looked like, what this would have felt like being in ancient Israel. Well, what do you know? What do you know? Please welcome Gary. You can give him a hand. He's doing well. He's doing well. We've taken very good care of him. This might be hard. <laughs> there we go, Gary. There we go, Gary. All right. I want to make this very real for us now. So Gary's going to be here with us for a couple of minutes. Um, and uh, good luck, Nick. Thanks, guys. Let's try to get through this together. I figured he was quiet outside. For those of you visiting for the first time, this does not happen every week. So let's try. <laughs> let's, if, we have, if we have to send him out prematurely, we do that. Let's read Leviticus 16. <laughs> let's try read Leviticus 16, verses 7 to 10. You're not going to die, buddy. It's okay. Then the priest shall take the two goats, all right? Verse five has told us both these goats are for the sin offering and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron, who was the first priest, shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron and future priest shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord, like you will, to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So two goats, two goats. 
Now, we can read this passage and just skip through it. So it's helpful to just imagine what this would have been like on the Day of Atonement, okay? Let's talk about the first goat, the first goat. This guy's representing both. Um, the first goat is the Lord's goat, the Lord's goat. That goat was slain. That goat had its, its sl throat slit as a sin offering for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation, for the people of God. Now, some of you might be sitting here and you might... You might have questions about this, that's fine, but you might have questions about what these guys were doing back in the day, and you might think that was barbaric. I just want to remind you, the majority of you in the room, bry. The majority of you in the room, bry, and often the context of your bries is not the forgiveness of your sin, but celebrations over the box. This was very, very serious, and something we just need to appreciate. And so, the goat was killed. Incense was then lit inside the most holy place. Why? Because the high priest was now going to go in, and it was still, after all the cleaning, he didn't want to come face to face with the presence of God, and so the smoke clouded the room so that he couldn't see stuff. So he went into the holiest of holies, he took the blood of the first goat with him, and he sprinkled it inside the most holy place. And he sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant, specifically on the atonement cover of the Ark. Why? What's happening here? Well, this first goat, this goat here, represented a, 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 a blameless life covering over the sin of others. That was the representation. And the, the blood represented life in the ancient world. And we still talk today about the lifeblood of something. Well, that was the representation. Blood represented life, the life of the creature. And so God had provided the blood as a way to cleanse the tabernacle and cleanse the people of their sin, which led to death. Get the picture? Death has stained this world. Death has stained your life. Spiritual death and ultimately physical death is something that hangs over people. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death, both spiritual and physical, are the result of this. And the first goat came in and, in a sense, paid the wages on behalf of the people. Paid the wages on behalf of the people. The goat was a substitute that received the penalty of sin on behalf of the people so that atonement could be made for them. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's what we're talking about. It was the moment where in a sense, the, in a passive way, the wrath of God was, was, was poured out. A symbol of a very real, active thing that will one day happen. And the wrath of God is not something that's contrary to the other aspects of God. It's not contrary to his love. In many ways, wrath is simply the correct response of a God of holy love when he encounters sin. God hates sin. God hates sin affecting the very people that he created to live in relationship with him and be free of sin. And so wrath comes as the right response to sin. And his wrath is satisfied by the substitute so that the people could live in right relationship with God, with their creator who loves them, who's provided for them. But both goats are part of the offering. Both goats are said to be part of this sin offering. So what about the second goat? What about the second goat? You're doing so well, bro. Um, the second goat was known as Azazel's goat, or Azazel's goat, however you pronounce it. Um, that's what the ESV translation says. Some of your translations may say scapegoat, um, and I think the scholarship is moving towards saying, actually, just retain the original Hebrew, Azazel or Azazel, because it's most likely a proper name um, of a demon or a place. The idea is a representative of 
the world of darkness and the death that was outside the camp, out in the wilderness, the place that is away from the presence of God. And no matter, no matter the translation that you have, the point is clear. The point is clear. The priest came, and the priest would have laid both hands on the head of the goat. Put both, just imagine what that scene would have been like. It might not have been that sanitized. He put both hands on the goat, and what he did was he confessed over the goat and onto the goat the people's sins, the people's iniquities, the people's transgressions, all their stuff, all the evil that they had done in thought and deed, everything people were guilty of, everything the people were ashamed of doing, the things that they thought that they hoped no one would find out, all of it, all the junk was placed on the goat. It's fine, this timing will work out quite well, actually. And then what happened? A man then took the goat and sent it away into the wilderness, and the goat was driven out of the camp. And why do we use that as the cue for you guys to drive Gary out of the camp? Thank you very much, Gary. Let's give him a round of applause. And for our wranglers. There we go. You're so, you're so nervous. Everyone's so tentative. And you're going to send me emails. Um, so the goat was driven out of the camp, like we just had. The goat was sent out into the wilderness, and the idea was make sure the goat does not come back. Make sure the goat does not come back. Later, Jewish rabbis in the tradition um, towards the time of Jesus, um, apparently they said, look, try and make sure the goat goes over a cliff when it's in the wilderness. Then we know it's dead and we know it's not coming back into the camp. Because if you were an Israelite, the last thing you wanted was the next morning to be taking your bin out on the driveway and you find this goat on your property. The goat with all the sins and all the transgressions and all the iniquities of the entire people on your land. You did not want that to happen. And so they drove it away. And it was symbolic of the people's sins being driven away from them, being taken away from them, of evil being purged from their midst, of being sent back to where it belongs, to the land of wild and waste, to the place of banishment and isolation. That's the wilderness. If Azazel is a, some spiritual being, this was not a sacrifice to the spiritual being. No, it says the, the, the goat is a sacrifice to, to God. It's his goat. But it was sent back to the place where evil comes from to say, hey, take this crap back to where you belong. It doesn't belong here. We've made a plan for it. It's going away. In, in a sense, the goat got the hell out of there. That's what happened with the second goat. That's the Day of Atonement. That's the Day of Atonement. It was like a reset moment for the people of God once a year. Um, it covered over the people. It cleansed the tabernacle. But it had to be repeated year after year. The end of Leviticus 16 institutes it as something that was now going to happen throughout the years, throughout the centuries. And eventually it moved from the tabernacle into the temple when the people uh, had Jerusalem as their capital. Solomon built the temple and the, the ceremonies continued there. After the temple was destroyed, like we're studying now, it was rebuilt under Ezra, had some modifications under Herod, just near the time of Jesus, and it continued past Jesus' day and beyond, all the way until the temple was wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD. The sacrifice continued year after year after year. Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time, but... But he is the goat. In fact, like that Messi Ronaldo thing, he's both those goats. He is both those goats. The, the very repetition of the sacrifices every single year shadowed something more coming. Okay? 
the, 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 the Hebrews didn't think that this was the be-all and end-all. The, the, the prophets, including Isaiah, looked forward to one day when not a blameless goat, but a blameless human would come and deal with sin. Moses wrote right at the beginning of the Bible that one day the seed of the woman will come and take care of sin. He's gonna be able to achieve the ultimate atonement for the sin of God's people. Remember what we said at the beginning, the heart of God is to be with his people, to be with them forever. The heart of God is for complete peace and harmony in this cosmos, okay? It's what the Jewish people called shalom. And God has set a day when Christ is coming back, a day that he has said he is gonna judge the world through Jesus. Jesus is coming back to wrap up this age. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, to deal with sin finally, to usher in the new world that, in, in a sense, everyone is hoping for and everyone's been waiting for. But without sin being atoned for, without sin being covered for, no one is gonna come out on the other side of judgment day okay. When human beings one day meet their maker face to face, if their sin is not covered for, they are not gonna come out Okay, because we are on a collision course with a holy God. And as I said earlier, he has warned us of the inevitable consequences of coming face to face with him without our sin being covered. But the good news, the good news is that God showed his love for us in that while you and I and humanity were still sinners, not meriting any favor at all from him, Christ died for us. The cross is an expression of many things. One of them is it's an expression of God's love. It's an expression of God's great love for us and the lengths that he would go in order to forgive us of our sins and save us from the consequences of them. That's what the cross is. And so at, at the cross, like, like the second goat, right, on the day of atonement, Peter tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Your sin, my sin, the wrongs that we've done, whether they are small and nobody knows about them, whether they are humongous and you have criminal records or who knows else what it could be, the things that we have done and the things that we did not do that we should have done, the people that we should have loved but we haven't loved, the people that we should have protected but we haven't protected, the thoughts that we thought that we shouldn't have thought, the worship God deserved that he hasn't received, all of this, all of our transgressions, all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, all of our junk was placed on Jesus on the cross. If you had an ounce of compassion for the goat that was up here, imagine Jesus, God himself, strung up on a cross. Like that second goat, Jesus was actually taken out of the camp. He was crucified outside the city walls. This horrific act was something that no one should, should see. He was crucified outside the camp. And like the first goat, the crucifixion, Christ's perfect blood was shed. Jesus' life-giving blood was spilled in our place to atone, to cover over our wrongs. Jesus was the perfect sinless one who died in our place. Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is God himself in the flesh. God himself clothed himself like the high priest clothed himself in humility in the white robe, God in humility clothed himself in humanity. The sinless one took on flesh 
And instead of offering another animal's blood in our stead, in his great love, he offered his own for you, for me. On the cross, God absorbed the debt that we owe into himself. That's what happened. This is the God that we worship. This is why we sing. This is why we love God. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we're passionate about Jesus in this church. That's why we're doing this series, because it is amazing news. It is amazing grace. Hebrews 10, we're almost done. Hebrews 10, the writer says this in verse 11 to 14. Every high priest, or every priest, sorry, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our sins have been placed on Christ. They have been punished. Blood has been spilled, and they can be removed from you. This is what we sing about all the time. If you're new here, maybe you don't even know this stuff. They can be taken away from you. Your sins can be chased from you. As far as the east is from the west, your sins can be removed from you. And the presence of God and relationship with God is available for anyone who would trust in Jesus. That's the good news. That's the message that we preach. Trust in Christ, who he is, what he has done. Okay? Like the high priest laying his hands on the goat, that's the idea. If you, if you want in on this, if you want your sins wiped out, if you want relationship with God, lay hold of Jesus, the real goat, the greatest of all time, the greatest human who ever lived because he is sinless. Lay hold of him by faith and your sins will no longer be counted against you because Christ has died on your behalf. Romans 3.23, Paul says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, we'll chat more about that next week, by his grace as a gift through the redemption, we'll get to that as well, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice that averts God's wrath and makes relationship possible. He put him forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Not your wealth, not your cleverness, not your pedigree, by faith. Faith. The work of Jesus is not yours unless you receive it. But the message of the church to the whole world is receive it. Receive it. If you're a Christian, it means that you've received it. That's all it that, that's the baseline of what it means to be a Christian. If you haven't received Christ and you've been coming to church for 40 years, you've missed the, the foundation of everything. If you think Christianity is about a whole bunch of do's that make you better with God, you've completely missed the point. You can never do anything to atone for your sin. That's why God came to die. And we trust in him. And so the big question for everyone, I suppose, really, it could be. It's just, let's just all make sure we've answered this question and hopefully answered it in the affirmative. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you received his death on your behalf. There's much more we could say. There's much more we're gonna say in the coming weeks. There's more we could say about tonight's topic that you can read in the, in the devotional. Um, let's just cl- close this sermon here by just reading what the, the writer of Hebrews, after he talks about the bloods of goats and bulls and, and the high priest and Jesus is the better high priest, what does he say next as a way of propelling us from here into life? 
Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you have full assurance of your faith? You should, if you've trusted in Christ, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If Jesus said, this is what you need to do, trust him, this is what you need to do. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day when everyone will meet God face to face, drawing near.